Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. William Dudley is a former Federal Reserve Bank president of New York, and buried last week in the news flow was his exceptionally important essay for Bloomberg Opinion on the banks and leverage. It harkens back to the summer of 2004, as codified by Simon Johnson in his book, 13 Bankers, when the SEC allowed the broker-dealers to become more leveraged. Bill, this is not like 2004, where you say these are banks that need to be free from regulatory restriction. No, it's completely different. Uh, their balance sheet's becoming more tight because the Fed is buying uh, treasury securities and agency mortgage-backed securities, and that's boosting the amount of reserves in the banking system. The banks can't make any choice about whether they're gonna hold the reserves or not collectively. So that as that amount of reserves in the systems goes up, the leverage ratios for these banks becomes more binding. How is how is Jamie Dimon or other bankers, how are they restricted now? Well, the, the leverage ratio hasn't bound very tightly for many banks, but it will become more binding as we go forward, as we go from now to the summer, uh, because reserves in the system are going to go up pretty dramatically. Uh, what, the, what will happen at uh, you know the big banks is they'll basically try to push deposits elsewhere. They basically won't want to take corporate deposits. They'll want the corporations to take their money elsewhere. That induces you know unnecessary frictions in the system for no net benefit. So it seems to me like it's pretty obvious that why don't you just make an adjustment for the leverage ratio to take into account the fact that the Fed is driving the amount of reserves in the system, not the banks. How uncomfortable is it, Bill, to be arguing to reduce certain regulatory pressures on banks at the same time that we're dealing with the Archegas fallout that J.P. Morgan says will probably cost banks $10 billion? Well, remember here, reserves at the Federal Reserve are not risky assets. So we're not talking about an exemption of, 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 that increases bank risk. And if we're really concerned about the idea of, you know, exempting reserves and that giving the banks more room, we can off, we can just raise the leverage ratio requirement from say 5% to 5.5% on what's left. The point is that reserves are not risky and the banks can't control how many reserves they hold. That's determined by the Fed. Although moving beyond just this particular point of regulation, talking about the leverage ratio, you've talked before about concern about leverage building up in the shadow banking industry, about a lack of regulation in that particular area of financial markets. Do you still see this as a concern and do you see it as a pressing one or simply something to deal with perhaps later on? I think it's pretty pressing. I mean, when you think about what happened last uh, March a year ago, uh, we basically, the federal government had to rescue the money market mutual fund industry again. We had problems for in mortgage REIT space. We had problems in the corporate bond space. We had dysfunction in the U.S. Treasury market. So, and then more recently, we had the Archegos uh, issue. So, it seems to me like the non-bank financial sector is still rife with a lot of issues that need to be dealt with sooner rather than later. Bill Dudley, I need to switch to the present Fed discussion. We've been making jokes all this morning about transitory as well. You and I have talked before about the British pretense of short-term, medium-term, long-term. Now we've got a transitory thing as we move along the x-axis in the timeline. Does any of this make theoretical sense, or are we just kidding ourselves, massaging the unknown? 
Well, the Fed is being patient for some, a couple of very obvious reasons. Number one, uh, they're not really sure where full employment is. Number two, they're not sure how fast inflation will rise once they get to full employment. And so they're willing. And number three, they're worried about inflation be, expectations becoming unanchored to the downside because the Fed hasn't been able to achieve its 2% inflation objective for a long time. So the change in policy is well motivated. The risk is that the Fed will be late. Uh, before the Fed basically tried to tighten monetary policy to arrive at a 2% inflation rate, full employment, and a neutral monetary policy all at the same time. Now they're not even going to start to tighten monetary policy until they're at full employment, inflation's at 2%, and they expect inflation to move higher. So the Fed's going to be much slower to tighten this regime than in prior regimes, and that does create some risks for the economy. But we say it's a risk that they'll be late. Isn't it a commitment that they're going to be late? Well, the question is how late. Uh, yes, I think they are, they are They are making a commitment that they're going to be late. The question is really how late and then how high will they have to raise short-term rates to basically keep inflation from continuing to accelerate. Now, the risk is, I think, that the, ri the risk is that recession will be uh, uh, more, more likely at that point because the Fed's going to have to move not to a neutral monetary policy, but to a tight monetary policy if they're following this new uh, Framework. So, Bill, this is a huge issue, and I think the most important question we can ask right now of Fed officials, and we asked it of Vice Chair Clarida on Friday, is how will they know if they're wrong on this transitory issue? If you were on the FOMC, back on the FOMC, Bill, how would you know if you were wrong? Well, at the end of the day, I mean, I think they, they, they're going to look at the bubble that we're going to see in inflation this year as mostly due to base effects and some frictional costs as you sort of reopen the economy. They're going to be really focusing more on the labor market. How many people are still unemployed compared to where we were in March of 2020? Right now, we have a shortfall of employment of about eight and a half, nine million people. And the Fed's going to be tracking that very carefully. As those people get employed, then the Fed will start to not focus on the transitory factor driving inflation up, but really the one that they are most concerned about is what, what point do you get to such a tight labor market that it generates wage pressures that drive up prices? And Fed officials have said that they have the tools to combat inflation that's higher than expected. Do they have the tools to deal with financial disruption after this incredible surge in risk taking that has been on the heels of Fed policy? What happens if that stopped in its tracks as a result of Fed tightening policy? Well, I think you're raising an important question that when the Fed goes from very, very friendly to unfriendly, financial markets are going to have an adjustment to make. And the adjustment could be quite severe after such a long period of very low interest rates. Uh, I don't think the Fed is, is cares about the stock market level per se, but they do care if the stock market were to collapse and that would potentially hurt the US economy. So the Fed does care about financial conditions in terms of how they feed into the, the performance of the economy. But the, the, the Fed's not gonna run to the rescue just because the stock market goes down 10 or 15 or 20%. No, but it raises a question about whether if the, if, if the Fed is going to tighten in the near term because they see that things are getting a little bit ahead of their skis or if they try to take actions to combat inflation, could they torpedo markets that are already at heady levels? I mean, do you feel like your colleagues are, act, uh, are actively considering that or is that sort of not as significant as just getting the market and the economy I back up to speed? I think Chair Powell repeatedly has made it very clear that the Fed's not going to be preemptive. And they're not that concerned about financial stability risk. What they're concerned about is getting that eight to nine million people back to work as soon as possible. That's the focus of policy right now. What that does do, though, creates a risk for markets when the Fed has to shift gears and start to worry about inflation. Bill Dudley, that's probably a, that's probably several years off. In our great debate here, do we still underestimate 
that wage inflation doesn't move because of the new technological impulses that we see in our economy? Well, that could be a, a factor. I mean, we're running an experiment, basically. We're it's running well said, well said. And, and we're going to see how it goes. And, and this experiment is, you know, has more uncertainty than usual because we've never had a recovery from a, a, a pandemic like this before, uh, going back for uh, more than 100 years. So anybody who tells you that they know how the economy is going to perform over the next year or two, I think is you know, not being truly honest with you because uh, we've never had an economic recovery like this one fueled yeah. by massive monetary and fiscal policy stimulus. So I think it's going to be very hard to know for sure how fast this is all going to unfold. Before you go, Bill, an important question. Mohammed Al-Aryan asked it on Bloomberg Opinion this morning. Did the Fed shift policy lanes at the wrong time? Do you think they made this framework shift a little bit prematurely. I ask that because I wonder if they had known what was about to happen on the fiscal side, whether they would have made this change. I think they would have made the change in, in, in any case because they were really worried about inflation expectations becoming an anchor to the downside and because they had such a poor uh, record of forecasting what level of employment is full employment. So I think they would have made the shift no matter what. But I think uh, Mohammed al Arian's piece is, is, is a good one because I think he points out the fact that there are some risks to this new strategy the Fed could be late, and if the Fed is late, they'll have to slam on the brakes, and they'll have consequences not just for the economy, but also for, for, for financial markets. Looking forward to catching up with you both on that issue a little bit later this week as well, Bill. Looking forward to that. Bill Dudley there, former Federal Reserve Bank of New York president, on some of the issues right now. This is a conversation that we have wanted to have for days with the passing of Robert Mundell. You've heard me say to Ken Rogoff and others that the line, the lineage of our international economics goes back through Chicago of long ago and Jacob Frankel. We are thrilled that Dr. Frankel could join us this morning. He is, of course, with a group of 30 chairman of the Board of Trustees. Jacob, we had a wonderful Friday with Ken Rogoff, Richard Clarida, and Angus Deaton talking about the 20th century international economics. When you were writing at Chicago, what did you learn from Mundell at Columbia? Well, to begin with, when uh, I came to Chicago uh, in 1968, Mundell was a superstar. We were students together, Rudy Dornbusch, Michael Musa, myself, and some other people who were all in a way hypnotized by the way in which he changed completely the way in which the economic profession looked at the economy. I would say that up to that point, the world was viewed in the textbooks as a closed economy. Each mm -hmm. country was a unit. Yes, it had some interrelationships inter with other countries through trade, but by and large, it was a closed unit ran by the policymakers of that unit. Came Mandel and said, the only closed economy for real is the world, but each country within the world right. is interconnected. And therefore, in, in order to understand how the economy works, we need to develop a new approach, which is called open economy macroeconomics. It means <clears throat> that you cannot run monetary policy under the assumption that you are a closed unit because, after well, all, 
exchange Jacob, rates. Let, let me, because of time, and I know Lisa wants to get in here, I want to drive this forward to the modern age. Because you, with your work with J.P. Morgan, with Mr. Diamond and the team there, and your work with Group of 30, you have been the architect of so much of our discussion of an open economy. As Mr. Diamond mentioned in his letter the other day, does America resist, re, uh, does America uh, have a chance to lose our open economy advantage? It depends if it keeps the open economy perspective or if it closes itself. The only way a country can succeed, small or large, in the integrated world is by being open, to benefit from the better things that other countries do and to benefit other countries by the things that we do. The principles of comparative advantage that were coined still ages ago by David Ricardo, Adam Smith, are still valid today, but even more so because capital markets are very interrelated. Capital markets are moving by expectations. Expectations are being fed by announcements and announcements are affecting the economy through the credibility. All of it together means that we cannot afford playing the game of isolationism. And anyone who will try to do it will be penalized by the markets. And I believe that by now there is greater understanding that when countries are trying to close themselves under the uh, excuse of trying to protect its own citizens, so to speak. As a matter of fact, they help their citizens because they don't allow the citizens to enjoy the benefits well, from the rest of the world. Knowledge and technology right. are shared. Jacob, this used to be a, a common thought, a common belief, and increasingly it's become less so, and there's been more isolationism. I'm wondering how much pushback you're getting, even from the members that you talk with among the group of 30 to this idea that perhaps globalization doesn't help everyone in the same kind of ways, and that certain things need to be done in a more domestic capacity, especially as we see these supply chain disruptions. Absolutely. But the main lesson is not to throw the baby with the water tub. Namely, if globalization is not perfect, don't make globalization a passé. On the contrary, ask yourself, what's not working? What was not working was that the benefits were not widely shared. And this is basically the agenda for governments to make sure that the benefits are widely shared. That's the, that's the essence of fiscal policy, of right. transfer payments, of tax policy, but it is not the case against opening the window. If you open the window, yes, you may get some storms, so make yourself more robust. But if you close the window, you really miss the smell of roses from the garden. Are the benefits from globalization the same now as they were 20, 30 years ago, given how much pay has evened out, given how much wealth has gotten spread out around the world? We don't have a same China today as we did 30 years ago, driving prices down. 30 years ago, we did not know that China will come and here it came. And you could have said 30 years ago that globalization has already exhausted its benefits. By the same token, today, when you look today at the we are we have and we have experienced now the pandemics we have experienced now the fact that pandemics did not recognize borders that knowledge is an international public good that the vaccinations 
are to be shared, that the mechanisms need to be in place. So by and large, the manifestation of globalization will come from different places in the, in the coming year or years will be in the health area, in the climate area. We need to have the cooperation right. and coordinate for issues that do not recognize Holders. Jacob Frankel, it is such an honor to have you on right now. Is Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute announced the death of John Williamson? I'll be honest, Jacob, I can't think of someone I'd better talk to at this moment than you. John Williamson was a microeconomist who spanned all of economics, including macroeconomics, and his founding in 1989 of the phrase the Washington Consensus. Jacob, every bit of your work identifies what Williamson wrought. Do we have a Washington Consensus today in honor of John Williamson? Well, to begin with, I really want to share Adam Posen's uh, uh, sadness and sorrow and uh, with the death of our good friend, John Williamson. The Washington Consensus was a concept that was developed about the notion that there was a consensus of what does it take to be a successful economy. And I believe that today we do not have the Washington consensus. And the reason is that especially since the great financial crisis of 2007, 8, 9, subsequently with the subsequent crisis, seems to be that policymakers in many places of the world have, I would say, lost their compass. And if you lose your compass, you cannot have a consensus about a strategy. And I think that the challenge today is, again, to recognize what are the basic principles that are robust and what are the things that can be put pushed aside. And I think that consensus mm -hmm. can be We, I, th I still think that the issue of globalization of openness, of making sure the globalization succeeds, of making sure that the benefits are shared, of making sure that the machinery is in place to bring about this sharing of the benefits. This has to be a strong fiscal system, a strong tax system, and a very independent, well-focused well monetary policy lo looking at the long term and not just about the short right. term. Jacob, Mandela, we have and you Jacob, the discussion about Mandela. He was a far-sighted economist that could see behind the well, corner, and therefore he was so successful. On Mundell, on Williamson, Jacob Frankel, we are so honored to have you with us, the former governor of the Bank of Israel. This is an exceptionally important interview. In the last 48 hours of surveillance, we've had terrific interviews on economics, and now a must-listen, must-watch on China. Ching Alrich is with J.P. Morgan. She is vice chairman of Asia Pacific Banking uh, for the firm, and that barely describes her commitment to a dialogue between the Western world and China. We're thrilled that uh, Jing Ulrich could join us uh, this morning. Jing, I want to talk about Hong Kong. I want to talk about a forever changed Hong Kong. How much has Hong Kong changed, and what does it look like for the J.P. Morgan Company in the coming years? 
Well, Hong Kong, I've been here for many years, and um, the Hong Kong financial markets are extremely buoyant, as you could see from you know, many um, uh, activity in the uh, IPO market. Many of the innovative companies from China are coming to the Hong Kong market to list. In terms of the uh, recovery from the pandemic, uh, Hong Kong actually has done pretty well. If you think about it, right, Hong Kong is a city of 7 million people. Altogether, I think there have been about 11,000 cases of COVID since the pandemic began. And these days, I think a pandemic is definitely coming under control. Economic activity is actually returning to normal slowly but steadily. Jing, with your influence, your experience, the breadth of your knowledge of the Pacific Rim, do you look at Hong Kong that it will be changed for Western banking, or will it be business as usual? Well, so far, it's been business as usual. We're as busy as ever, um, helping our clients among the corporates and also investors. And remember, China has a huge amount of liquidity as well. Through the Connect program between Shanghai and Hong Kong, Shenzhen and Hong Kong, there's a lot of mainland money actually coming to Hong Kong to invest in world-class companies. Jin, can we talk about what's happening on the mainland right now? The equity market has really struggled over the last month or so. What's going on? Well, you know, the equity markets in China have performed differently from the U.S. The U.S. indices are near all-time highs. The China market had done very well up until February of this year. I think this has to do with the liquidity situation in China. As you know, normally, the Chinese equity market performance is very much um, in sync with the credit cycle. Now that the mainland authorities are actually tightening liquidity because economic recovery is firmly on track, they want to control the leverage ratio, they want to control the risk of overheating. So therefore, as they really reining in the, um, the credit uh, uh, growth, you're seeing some softening of the mainland markets. They had done very, very well throughout 2020 and also into January and February this year. I think this is taking a breather. Not just reining in credit, they're reining in some of the big tech players. And I understand you can't do single names, so I'll do it for you. Alibaba and Financial very much in the news at the moment, Jing. And I think for people outside of the mainland, outside of Hong Kong even, I think they're struggling with what's happening with regulation on the ground around some big tech players. These were big themes that investors worldwide wanted to get some traction, some exposure to. What are you telling them now? Well, you know, despite the recent market volatility, we think the digital economy in China is still alive and well, especially since the pandemic. The digital way of life is definitely not turning back. If you look at e-commerce, you look at the sharing economy, you look at payments, everything is growing in a very robust fashion. So we believe the medium to long-term outlook for the large tech companies uh, remains very robust. Although you've got to wonder which area people are going to invest in big tech, do you find that some of your international investors are more hesitant to invest in Chinese big tech because of the regulatory oversight that does seem to be tightening? Actually, many international investors are looking at China as an asset class. They find themselves actually underexposed to China. If you think about the next 10 years, the Chinese economy is going to surpass the U.S. economy to become the largest in the world. 
However, if you look at the weighting of uh, global funds in China, it remains very low. So we're actually looking at international institutions finding different ways to gain more exposure to China, both equities and fixed income securities. And on the fixed income side, you know, I know you guys talk about the 10-year treasury yield all the time, every day on your show. China is 3.2% uh, on the 10-year right now. So that's relatively attractive for international funds really seeking to get some additional yields. Can you dovetail the advent of a digital yuan into this conversation, the idea that that could potentially lure more money into the nation due to it being on the cusp of more modern technology? Do you view a digital yuan as bringing more capital into the nation? Well, I think China has been very judicious in terms of bringing capital onshore because they don't want too much capital flooding into the country, causing you know, bubble concerns. And there's ample liquidity already in China. So I think when it comes to capital inflows and outflows, the authorities are very careful in terms of controlling what types of money comes into the country and what types of money can flow outside of the country. So we're seeing, obviously, in recent couple of years, the gradual internationalization of the Chinese currency. We're seeing the Chinese currency being used a lot more in international trade. But there's a long way to go. You know, in the next 10 years, as I said, China will become the largest economy in the world. But the Chinese yuan is still not fully convertible on the capital account. So it's going to be a steady journey of gradual opening up. And I do believe in the coming several years, capital inflows and outflows will gradually become uh, loosened. Jing, uh, I, I want to speak about not so much the politics of the moment or, frankly, the politics of the future, but the reality that business can often lead politics. J.P. Morgan has been in Hong Kong for 90 years or so. J.P. Morgan provided leadership in being in Taipei in 1970. Explain how business and financials will interlink with our politics in this delicate debate between the mainland and Taiwan. Well, you know, I will leave the politics to politicians. So we, um, as a firm, are very committed to the Asia-Pacific region, of course, including China and the rest of the economies. And uh, as you said, you know, we've been in the region in some countries for over 100 years. And this year, we're actually celebrating our 100th anniversary in China. So we're here to serve our clients, uh, both international clients who want to do more business in the region, and also um, local clients who actually want to go global. So we are here really acting as a bridge uh, between East and West, and we're here to facilitate capital transactions both in and out of the region. Jing, some really, really sensitive topics. Yeah. And we appreciate your time this morning to comment on some of them. Jing Gorick there, JP Morgan Chase, Managing Director and Asia Pacific Vice Chairman. Tony Rodriguez is with Nuveen with years and years of work. And what's wonderful about Tony's work, it's really been focused on the corporate side and investment grade, his tenure at Credit Suisse of years ago. Tony Rodriguez, you are ever optimistic here about the credit quality that's out there. Do we underestimate the goodness of the balance sheet of corporate America? Well, good morning, Tom. Good to be with, uh, with all of you guys. Um, I do think that there is some underestimation of the quality of balance sheet. I mean, we are looking at Nuveen this year 
at 25% or higher earnings and cash flow growth. And when you look at what companies did basically throughout 2020, was they really fortified their balance sheet. They borrowed a lot, but they kept a lot of cash on their balance sheet. So what we're expecting to see this year, both in the high-grade space and the high-yield space, is a significant paydown of that debt where you might get a one full turn of leverage decline this year in the high yield market. So balance sheets are going to be very healthy in our view. And from then, from that perspective, you can look at the pricing in the high yield market. Yeah. And while we certainly think it's pretty full, we think that it's justified by the reality of the improvement in the fundamentals. John, I'm going to suggest that something new here to see that gross pay down that we see. And we saw it from Jim Suva on Apple, where he says they're going to really come in with a vengeance on buybacks and dividend increase. It's to see leverage come in. But then in the high yield space, look at the story right now. United Airlines out this morning, kicking off a yes. $5.5 billion high yield bond sale. We've had a ton of supply and the numbers this year are set to get bigger, Tony. And the numbers are one thing. What that money is used for is another. And you've touched on this. How much of that is just refinancing? Well, we're seeing the numbers that would indicate something like 70 to 80 percent is refinancing. So wow. companies have been able to extend out the debt, which is clearly very critical in case you run into some sort of liquidity hiccup and inability to finance. But in addition to that, by paying down some of the cash that they built up, given all the uncertainty they were facing in 2020, now that really starts to bring down the leverage. And that's a big reason why we see default forecasts not only our own, but rating agencies, other street firms, bringing them down to numbers that in many cases are as low as 2% defaults on a trailing 12-month basis by the end of this year. Those are almost record lows. Tony, this makes sense when you look back six months, but there seems to be a cognitive dissonance a little bit when you take a look at the $1.6 trillion of high-yield debt outstanding in the United States, and you look at that, it's near a record high, that if you look back beyond the immediate uh, pandemic times, these companies still look highly leveraged. Is there some sort of reckoning that is waiting for these companies past this era when they actually have to start paying this down in real time, not just paying down some of the borrowing that they did uh, during the pandemic time? to stay alive. Yeah, well, when we look at kind of long-term averages of debt to cash flow, and you look at the high yield market, you say maybe it's four to four and a half times debt to EBITDA market, we see numbers coming back down into that range, meaning the long-term historical average range. So what that tells us is that the overall high yield market is really not, we don't believe, a significant risk of dislocation just from the level of debt. The dislocation would come really more from a surprise in inflation, a much weaker growth outlook, a p potentially negative outcomes on whether it's the vaccine or resurgence of COVID, more of a fundamental driver of weaker growth. But from a financial stability perspective, the high yield market is pretty well positioned in terms of level of debt and where cash flow is and where companies have been able to restructure their balance sheet to extend out their maturities, kind of pushing back any near-term maturity wall that is often a big risk in the market from a liquidity perspective. Tony, just a final question for me before we let you go. Margins could be an issue this year. And margins will be in focus in the next couple of weeks when we get the earnings as well on the cost side of things. How closely are you looking at that right now, Tony? Well, very closely, and we clearly expect there to be some cost pressures, particularly here in the middle of the year as we head into towards the end of the year. All of the supply bottlenecks that you guys have highlighted, some of the initial reopening price pressures, whether it's from not only a goods perspective, but also obviously from employment, bringing people back in quickly enough 
to match what we think will be a big surge in services demand. So we'll be looking to see whether that is truly just a transitory short-term bulge in those pressures impacting margins negatively and what the outlook will be for 22. Right now, our view is that the margin pressures will be transitory. And in 22, you get back to an equilibrium level of really still pretty uh, supportive margins from a debt perspective. London getting drunk on this program quickly. This drinking game's taking off, isn't it? Tony Rodriguez, <laughs> Nuveen Head, a fixed income strategy. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.